Welcome to another edition of the TDN Writers Room Podcast brought to you by Keeneland. My name is Bill Finley. I'm a correspondent for the Thoroughbred Daily News. And I also co-host the Down the Stretch Show on Sirius XM Radio every Saturday morning. Legendary announcer, Dave Johnson. It's a must listen. I'm uh, Randy Moss with NBC Sports and my trusty sidekick, Lucy, is back and comfortable on the couch. Zoe Cabman here with XBTV and First Racing. I am currently at Keeneland. I'll just give you a, a quick view of where I am. Whoa. Uh, you know, I've actually never been up into the suites at Keeneland. I might have to try and beg for an invite at some point because it's very <laughs> nice up here. So have a nice view. And the rain has followed me. Seems to just be following me wherever I go. Well, of course, that's because you spent all that time in Saratoga where the rain was habitually uh, an element that uh, created problems for the meat. But there was no Saratoga last weekend. So now let's focus in on Del Mar. And also there was, of course, the big uh, days at Kentucky Downs with those just astronomical purses. But the Del Mar races, the Del Mar debutante and the Del Mar futurity kind of stole the show a little bit, especially the Del Mar debutante. And we'll start with that. I mean, coming in Tamara was a star. She's out of Beholder. She breaks her maiden first time out with a rough trip. She stumbles at the start. She's a TDN rising star. But how is she going to do when she steps up and faces much tougher competition? This was a good field in the Del Mar debutante. And uh, boy, did she come through, Zoe. She blew them away, winning by six and three quarter lengths. And um, a couple interesting, you know, uh, comments. You know, first of all, let's not call her, say she's as good as Beholder yet. Let's not do that. She's got a long, long way to go. But um, just out of curiosity's sake, I, I, I look back at the records at this similar point. Beholder was second in this race and got an 88 buyer number. Tamara won the race and got a 91 buyer number. That's, you know, that's pretty close right there. But uh, just based on that little bit of information, she's certainly fallen a following in Mama's footsteps. It was an absolutely sublime performance. Um, masterful ride by Mike Smith. A lot of people think you've just got to hang on, but you have to think back to her debut where she stumbled. She almost fell on her head. Mike Smith could have come off. He could have rushed her up there. She could have had a bad experience. She had a good experience. She learned a lot from that. They always knew she was going to be close. And she was just in his hands the whole way. It almost gives me chills, just even thinking about her coming down the lane with her ears pricked as easily as she came down the lane. Now, of course, she's named for Tamara Gustavan, the late B. Wayne Hughes's daughter, and they were all on hand to watch it. And I was speaking to Ned Toffey the other day at Keeneland. And I'm like, man, that was something. He's like, wasn't it? And he said, you know what's really eerie? Because everybody is comparing that to behold a specific classic. I mean, this is a filly winning a grade one stake as a two-year-old and they're comparing it to behold a specific classic. He said, the really funny thing is they have behold a specific classic nine saddle towel hanging up in the office at Spendthrift. And uh, Tamara broke from post position number nine in the grade one debutante. Every step of the way, she was faster than the boys who would run 
the following day in the Delmar Futurity. The first split, the second, 44.45. The only split that wasn't quicker than the boys' race was the six furlong split that was 109.72. She finished up in 122.41 and won by six and three-quarter lengths. Her final eighth of a mile was 12.69. The boys finished up in 122.65. The final eighth of the mile, 13.32. And they were riding at the end of the race. I mean, that was a sublime performance by Tamara. Laurent, a first out winner for Peter Urton, was very, very good. Gate to Paradise was good. But, I mean, they just looked like they were tied to a pole at the 16th pole because she just won so easily. It was a massive performance. Really exciting to watch. Yeah, all you have to do is look at the hopeful stakes at Saratoga and even the Del Mar uh, Futurity to realize that at this stage of their careers, when two-year-olds go that fast early, going seven furlongs, it's very difficult for them to finish up well. And she not only went that fast early, but then she kicked clear yeah. very impressively at the top of the lane. To put the 91 buyer speed figure into perspective, uh, last year, and Tell Me No Lies won this race with the buyer of 71. Uh, the year before, Grace Adler won it with a buyer of 74. And the year before that, Princess Noor, uh, trained by Bob Baffert, won it with a buyer of 79. So I, I we'll see what happens now going forward uh, next start. You would think the Chandelier Stakes two-turn race at Santa Anita would be the next logical spot. Maybe they'll uh, do what Bill Finley would recommend against and wait for the Breeders' uh, <laughs> Cup uh, <laughs> Phillies. But right now, she'd have to be a pretty heavy favorite, I think, for the Breeders' Cup at Santa Anita. Uh, the last... Six years, the Breeders' Cup Juvenile Phillies has been dominated by East Coast-based Phillies. But if you go back before that, there have been 10 different occasions in the Breeders' Cup era when a horse, a filly, ran in the Del Mar debutante and then went on to win the Breeders' Cup Juvenile Phillies. And uh, this one right now looks like she might become number 11. And I could put her on the shelf and not run her back till the Kentucky Oaks. Um, you know, that, that would be more more uh, along the lines of what everybody's thinking these days. Know, one thing else to add as well, because everyone had basically written off Beholder as a dud as a broodmare, right? She had QB1. She's had several others. It wasn't only until Tina Ella came along last year. She finally broke her maiden. Dick Mandela had a sigh of relief standing in the winner's circle, delighted that she was finally able to get one to the winner's circle, and now she has Tamara. I spoke to Fred Mitchell from Clarkland Farm, who had Leslie's Lady, and we were talking about Tamara the other day as well, and he was like, well, you know, that's why I got Leslie's Lady so cheap. Her first few foals weren't all that great by any means, and then he bought her fairly cheaply, considering what she produced after that, and she had into mischief. She had Beholder, and the list goes on and on. It took her a while to get going as a broodmare. So maybe the best is yet to come for Beholder as perhaps the next blue hand mare. And uh, so let's not forget that the next one in line is the Curlin Beholder yeah. that Amr Zion bought for $4 million uh, back at, at the uh, Fasic Tipton Saratoga sale. So it's like a steal was, now, doesn't it? Looks like no, a steal. Absolutely. It is it, the winter book favorite for the 2025 Kentucky Derby as we speak. Okay. So back to Delmar, the Delmar Futurity. Um, all the glowing things that we said and well deserved about Tamara. 
I think we have to be a little less enthusiastic about Prince of Monaco. Came in off a big win in the best power. It ran a 103 buyer. The horse was one to 20 in the odds. He did win, but it was by three quarters of length over stable mate Miramati, named, of course, for the announcer. And, you know, I it was to me, there was nothing impressive about the performance. Bob Baffert has won this race 17 times, but only two of his Delmar Futurity winners have gone on to win the Kentucky Derby, and that's American Pharaoh and Silver Charm. I mean, it's hard to knock a horse that wins a grade one, but with all the big buildup, like there was for Tamara, it was similar with this horse. Uh, he didn't live up to the hype. He definitely wasn't as, as impressive as Tamara. Uh, Miramati had, had, uh, mixed results coming into the Del Mar Futurity. He had largely been a disappointment, especially in his most recent one mile race, uh, before the Del Mar Futurity. Uh, so, you know, for example, you would have to be much less enthusiastic about Prince of Monaco, uh, going forward as than you would Cave Rock, for example, a year ago. Uh, Cave Rock went into the Breeders' Cup Juvenile a year ago off a win in the Del Mar Futurity, off a win in the American Pharaoh, with buyer speed figures of 101, 98, and then 104. And he couldn't win the Breeders' Cup Juvenile. He was beaten by Forte last year at odds of two to five. So Prince of Monaco has a little more work to do, I think, uh, to restore that reputation. And one other a little concern maybe not so little about Prince of Monaco, is his distance capability. He was stretching out to seven furlongs, not a big stretch out, obviously, for the very first time in the Del Mar Futurity. His dam was unraced. Her dam was strictly 100% a sprinter. And Prince of Monaco is by Spitestown, who is not necessarily uh, a sprint influence, but is certainly more of a speed influence uh, than a stamina influence. Yeah, I mean, that is definitely something to add to it. And it's not often that Bob's horses might bounce off a big figure because he knows exactly where they are at, at all times in their trainings. But it's possible he might have bounced. I thought he showed a little bit of grit and determination. I know Flavian thought he was just going to sail on by Miramadi, who Bob has always held in high regard as a good horse, and so he should. They spent a lot of money on him. But maybe he's finally figured things out and he's a little bit better than everyone gave him credit for. Right. Maybe he has finally got things going. Maybe he feels a little bit better. Maybe he loved Del Mar. Maybe he had a really good summer. Maybe he just ran a huge race because the other horses were a fair way back from those two. If you didn't know already, the TDN Rice's Room is brought to you by Keeneland, which is where I am right now. Suite number nine, if you want to know. The Keeneland September sale is underway with a bang, and boy, is it. With eight seven-figure yearlings selling in the first session, which was yesterday, Monday, that session was led by a $2.3 million daughter of Intermischief purchased by Shadwell Stables. In all, the average for session one was up from last year's record figure, to over 503,000. The Keeneland September sale continues through September the 23rd. We'll be right back after this message from Keeneland. If this place could talk, it would roar. It would say, this is a racing. 
this beating heart in the heart of horse country. Steady and strong beneath the roar, reminding us why, for the love of the horse, for generations to come. Brought to you by Stone Street. Stone Street catalogued 59 yearlings for the Keeneland September sale, including Hip 1026. I got a chance to take a look at her this morning. She's a filly by Munnings from Rainier who sells on Thursday. And want to talk about an update? We already did, but here you go. The filly is a half to Prince of Monaco, who won the Grade One Delmar Futurity this past weekend. That is some update right there. Check her out at Barn 49, selling at Keeneland with TaylorMade. Stone Street, born to run, raised to win. And then our next segment coming up after this one, when the Green Group Guest of the Week, we're going to talk to Dr. David Lambert, who is from Stride Safe USA, and find out about some of the things they're doing to keep horses safer. And, you know, it, it, it's good to focus on the positive because, unfortunately, we've had with the breakdowns at Churchill and the, the Saratoga meet with Maple Leaf, Mel, and New York Thunder, have had to spend, uh, justifiably so, a lot of time on this podcast about the bad news and all the breakdowns. So um, it, it dawned on me the other day that... Uh, without a lot of fanfare, what has been going on at Del Mar is phenomenal. And I wrote a story for the Thoroughbred Daily News, which I said, is, is, it perf- is it possible for a racetrack to have a perfect safety record? And the answer we know is no, but Del Mar is getting awful close to this. And they went through the meet this year with not a single horse breaking down during a race. One horse died a little bit later, a few days later, after uh, suffering an injury and not coming through the uh, surgery uh, in a manner where the horse could be saved. They did have three uh, deaths as well uh, in morning training. Last year in 2022, very similar story. Not a single horse broke down in a race. Two horses did also die after surgery was being performed on them. Is it perfect? No. But, you know, this is what we've been talking about all along, getting these numbers down to a point where it's as close to perfect as you can reasonably get. And Delmar, Zoe, and I know you have a lot of experience with what Santa Anita's done, and their numbers are comparable and also very commendable. But what are they doing out there that is making this, They, you know, I, you can't compare all racetracks as the data is not out there. A lot of tracks don't publish their data. But I think it's pretty safe to say Delmar has become the safest racetrack in America. Yeah, I mean, Cal- the whole California racetrack group has got together and put in some of the strongest, most stringent safety uh, resumes a- across the nation. I mean, I said it last week and I'll say it again. It's a hard place to train a horse if you're a trainer because you're jumping through hoops. You're jumping through pre-work checks, post-work checks, pre-race checks, post-race checks. There are a lot of hoops to jump through. It's incredibly tough. The vets are on you. There are vets um, stationed at various points around the racetrack that are employed by the racetrack just to flag horses. They'll come back to the barn. They'll jog them down the road. You know, 
there are a lot of eyes on these horses and that's that's what that's what the racetrack needs that is in order to get the numbers down one thing that dalmar has that saratoga didn't have over the course of the summer is good weather and the one thing that we've seen with rain comes fatalities i hate to say it but it's the sealing and unsealing of the racetracks. It's the different surfaces with the horses pounding on them. It's rain does not help anything. And the CHRB mandated that horses cannot run on sealed racetracks. You cannot work on sealed racetracks. It just adds to concussion and micro fractures and everything else that goes on. So they have great weather. They have great veterinary checks, good horseman, and excellent track man out there in Dennis Moore who oversees all of California's racetracks. So it's it's a team effort. And let us not forget the trainers because it's hard work being a trainer in California at the moment and having to pass all these vet checks. So, I mean, everybody is working for the betterment of the sport. And that is what needs to go on. And that is why they're having such a good record. Yeah, Zoe, you just hit upon the primary reason why long-term a, a good synthetic racing surface will always be safer than even than a well-maintained dirt surface because yeah. of the rain factor yeah. and what it does to a dirt track. But all you have to do is go back less than a decade ago to the immediate aftermath of the synthetics being pulled up in Southern California and look at the fatality statistics, at the breakdown statistics at Santa Anita and Del Mar, and they were not good. I mean, they were two of, of the worst statistically, and there were others in the East Coast as well. I mean, Churchill Downs has never been a, had a fantastic record either uh, of catastrophic in the catastrophic breakdown area. And we've, we've credited Santa Anita on this podcast in the past, Del Mar, deserves clearly just as much credit. I mean, from top to bottom. And it is a yeoman's task to do everything that they have to do from the veterinary perspective and, and things like that in order to, to make those dirt racetracks as safe as it was. And what you saw at Del Mar this summer, weather helping, obviously, uh, was it's, was as good as it could possibly get for a yep. dirt racetrack. Yeah. And Randy, let's not forget that, um, you know, Del Mar, as you said, the weather advantage is is, is huge. I mean, it's almost an uh, impossibility that they'd have a sloppy track there with the kind of weather they have during this time. But, you know, they've gone from one extreme to another. You know, if you call, if I'm calling them now the safest racetrack in North America, well, 2016, again, because we don't have all the numbers, uh, but they were likely the most dangerous racetrack. In North America, and listen, listen to these numbers. After I gave you the numbers for what happened this year, with not a single horse dying during a race, and only three dying so far as morning training. Seven in 2016. This is after they pulled the synthetic out. They had 12 deaths in races, and plus uh, uh, 20. Wait a minute, 12, uh, 12 in races, and then 11 in training. So there was 23 deaths at the meet, 23 deaths at the meet. The number we always look at so far as deaths per um, thousand starts uh, was 3.01 per one. And those are terrible numbers. But to their credit, um, and I talked to Josh Rubenstein and he said, you know, we just realized we had, he's the president of Delmar. We have to get this right. They brought in um, Dennis Moore, the famed track superintendent to work on the track. And they put in all these um, uh various, uh, you know, hoops that you have to jump through with the veterinarians. I hope every racetrack can do this. I realize that maybe the mountaineer parts of the world don't have the resources 
to do some of the things they've done at Del Mar. But anybody, every racetrack out there should be looking at what Del Mar, Santa Anita and the California Horse Racing Board have done, because th these numbers are just remarkable and they're such a breath of fresh air. Yeah, I mean, after what happened at Santa Anita with all the horse deaths, what was that, five, six years ago, maybe a little bit less than that? I mean, I remember some of us said at the time, obviously, you never, ever want to see a single horse death, but maybe, please, please let there be a silver lining to this in the future. And it looks like that's what we're seeing. That's been sort of the impetus for wholesale changes in Southern California that have made a huge difference in saving racehorse lives and uh, hopefully that is and will continue to spread nationwide. You're right. Yeah, the, the safety protocols are, are moving eastward. That is for sure. Um, they're already starting. Obviously, we spoke about it in New York and um, it's, it's the way to go. And, you know, synthetic tracks aren't going to hurt either. The TD and Writers Room brought to you by the Pennsylvania Horse Breeders Association. We've been keeping you up to date over this last year or so about the exploits of famed Pennsylvania bred Caravelle, or there's something else to report now about Caravelle. She is due to be sold at Keeneland November. The Breeders' Cup turf winner, winner of over $2 million, will be sold along with her damn ZZ Zoom Zoom at Keeneland November. A ZZ Zoom Zoom, by the way, will be sold in full to justify. Dam and daughter will be consigned by Hunter Valley Farm and Figure to uh, be one of those combos there that bring plenty of fireworks to an auction that always has its own fireworks as well. Reminder, the next two races in the PA Bread, PA Sired Stallion Series coming up soon, September 23rd at Parks, two-year-old Colts, two-year-old Phillies, both at distances of six and one-half furlongs. The PA Horse Breeders Association presents the Pennsylvania Stallion Series. Six races for PA Sire, PA Bred two-year-olds at Parks. Two $100,000 contests at five and a half furlongs. On August 21st, PA Day at the Races. September 23rd, PA Derby Day has two races at six and a half furlongs, both with a $150,000 purse. And in December, two races going long, each worth $200,000. For more, go to pabred.com. The TD and Riders Room also brought to you by the Fast Sires at Windstar Farm, the sponsor for our weekly Fastest Horse of the Week. This week, we're going to look at a son of Into Mischief. As Keeneland September is going on, Into Mischief obviously has been in the news. Well, the most accomplished son, the fastest son of Into Mischief so far, life is good. Life is good. Nine triple-digit buyers, including that 112 buyer speed figure. He bred 192 mares in his first book, included among those 70 graded stakes winners or graded stakes producers and 25 grade one winters, winners or grade one producers. I'll get this spit out. Life is good. Very fast and standing stud at Windstar Farm. Now, the fastest horse of the week ran on Saturday at Woodbine in the Canadian Stakes. She is the defending Canadian Horse of the Year, and her name is Moira. She returned to the winner's circle after losing three times as a heavy favorite in Woodbine races to begin this summer with a resounding six and one quarter length win included in those horses she beat fourth place favorite Fev Rover, who had defeated Moira in a race earlier this summer at Woodbine. Moira expected to run next in the EP Taylor Stakes in early October at Woodbine, $750,000 for that race. That's a race that she lost last year to Rougier, 
with a rough trip, with a rough trip in that race by only a neck. Moira 101, fire speed figure in the Canadian, our fastest horse of the week. The TD and Riders Room is brought to you by The Green Group, a tax consulting and advisory firm specializing in the thoroughbred industry. For more information on The Green Group and what it can do for your taxes, go to www.greenco.com. And we welcome in now the Green Group Guests of the Week. His name is David Lambert, and he is the founder of Stride Safe USA. David, I know we'll have a lot of questions for you, but let's just start with the nuts and bolts and explain to us. What is Stride Safe USA? How does it work? And how can racing best use the information that you provide the sport with from your product? Oh, that's a lot. Um, <laughs> so, Stride, in, in order, Stride Safe USA is a company that we put together a few years ago. Um, it's a partnership between myself, initially, between myself and a man in Australia. His name's David Hawke. He owns a company called Stride Master. Uh, Dave had a, a company that uh, developed a sensor system that they used originally for timing and to provide handicapping information uh, to people in Tasmania. Uh, the um, I was down there in Australia in 2018 giving a lecture and had occasion to meet with Dave's wife, who's uh, also an English vet. And we were talking about sensors because I had sensors on racehorses over here to try and predict performance and I needed a better system, and Dave's system looked fantastic. So I was talking to her about getting access to her sensor system, and then it came out that they'd had this uh, piece of equipment on horses in Tasmania for nine years, and they had 35,000 runs of sensors on horses in races, and I, I, I was not aware of that. I didn't know anybody had ever done that. Um, so I was going to use their sensor, and... A few months after that, in early 19, we had all those fractures happen in California. And I knew from work I'd done with my sensor system that you could see changes in a horse's stride when something was going wrong. I'd use the system to predict performance and to tell me if a horse was likely to be a grade one winner or not. And it was almost coincidental along the way that we saw these pattern changes when there was a potential injury. Uh, and so I, I tried to reach out to tracks and say, look, if you get this uh, equipment from um, from Australia, if we get access to these 35,000 uh, records from races, and I share with you the technology I know about a racehorse stride, there's going to be some key information for you here. Because for the first time, you're going to get actual biological data from the athlete itself when it's running at high speed. And that seemed to me to be the logical place to go and look to find um, to find a solution to this problem we're facing. Anyway, that didn't just pan out quite as I expected. So Dave and I formed a company and we set off, it's nearly five years now, trying to develop the uh, equipment, develop the understanding and, and come up with a product that we could present to the industry to try and spot those animals that were in danger of breaking down. That's it, kind of it in a nutshell. Right. So, so David, how does this equipment specifically uh, spot horses that are in danger of a catastrophic injury? 
Okay. Uh, first thing is um, the measurements it's taking. It's taking movements or forces, if you like, assessing the forces side to side, up and down and front to back. So we're getting, in essence, in a piece of equipment, what a jockey feels. So all that movement in your legs and your shoulders and your hands, everything you feel when you're riding a horse, this sensor simply picks that up and puts numbers on it so we can quantify it. Um, the good thing about equipment like that is it's very sensitive. So we're getting 2,400 data points every second. Um, and then it never forgets. So it can remember any particular horse in perfect detail for infinity for as long as you want to go. Uh, so that gives us um, a, a massively uh, sensitive and important tool if we're starting to understand um, understand horse movement. And then we'd recognized already that every horse has his own unique way of going. These sensors would pick up the same pattern for the same horse all the time. Uh, but if something were to go wrong with that horse, then that pattern changes and the sensors are able to pick that up. And so um, the preliminary work was to look at cases where we knew the horses had suffered a fatal injury and try to quantify the nature of the patterns that preceded the fatality. That was the basic research that we had to tidy up. And that's where we are now. We've got that pattern. We can identify each individual horse's style. We've got an elaborate model that can tell us when the changes that are happening in a horse's body um, put them at greater risk of, of fatal injury. So in a sense, your equipment is going to save a life. Have you had any success in that thus far with some of your tests? What about mm -hmm. in Australia as well? And how have the trainers welcomed this into their barns? Because a lot of times horse trainers don't want to be told by a computer that yeah. their horse is wrong when by our eye, the horse looks completely fine. Yeah, that's right. That's, that's the whole thing right there. There's, there's a huge <laughs> amount there. Uh, let, me, let me start with the good news if I can. Has it, has it worked? Most clearly it has. Uh, we've done some retrospective studies. Um, uh, on one occasion, we had uh, approximately 20 horses that subsequently died in a group of 6,600 runs. And when we did the math on all of that, um, we were able to identify 18 out of the 20 before the event happened. Um, once we had that pattern, we had an occasion recently where we had a couple of horses were given an alarm to the trainer. The trainer thought they were fine, was quite ready to run them back again. And uh, we were able to put those two horses through a PET scan. And both of them, both of these two horses had evidence of a, uh, a condylar fracture just sitting there waiting to happen. The bone was fine. All the pathology was there on the PET scan. Um, the horse was sound, but that animal or those two animals one more race, two more races, they, they were going down. So those two animals there were certainly saved um, by the technology. And and what about the, the trainers? I mean, yeah. have you had any resistance from some trainers that are like, oh, that's all hocus pocus, I, I'm not yeah. believing into it, when you say, right. listen, this horse has to be stopped on? Yeah, yeah, that, that, that's... That's a big hurdle to get that was to get over. But the news is really good because at the end of the day, all I'm doing is empowering the trainers. 
That's the essence of what we're all about. We believe the answer to the problem must lie in the trainer's hands because they're the ones who are making uh, welfare decisions on behalf of the horses. They're the only ones who can do this. So I felt our job was to give the trainers, empower the trainers, and give them the best possible information that we could. Um, so even though our intentions were that, of course, when you show up, not everybody hears that, and they have their own knee-jerk reactions and resist and, and push back. And shit, we had to face that, but that's fair enough. You know, you could understand that, particularly in this climate. You know, they're afraid of a new rule and a new regulation and another hoop to jump through before the horse can can enter in, can run a race, you know, get scratched. Um, so I had to just reassure everybody that that's not what we're doing. We're going to give you information several weeks before an animal is going to break his leg. And we're going to tell you that that horse is in trouble and afford you the opportunity with your vets to start looking particularly carefully at these horses um, and if they do so, have then the opportunity to spot an impending problem and just not enter the horse in the race. Uh, we don't have to scratch one. Ultimately, hopefully, this will be a decision made by trainers not to enter. And, and even, in, even more in the future, they'll start to recognize these changes very, very early and start to get into the healing process long before uh, anybody's even aware that something's going wrong. That's the long-term goal. David, you said you've been uh, doing this for five years. It's mm. obviously not snake oil. And you just gave us the, you know, the facts and figures and the information about how uh, your sensors can alert trainers to the fact that their horses might be in imminent danger. So now I'm scratching my head, and maybe you have too. Why is this not more in more widespread usage? I, I think uh, the answer to that is probably just human nature, right? Um, come with any idea to a large group of people and there are going to be those unusual folks who jump on it straight away and then there'll be those who'll get used to it a little bit later. The establishment and the, the political players, if you like, the management level are going to be slower still. Uh, they have a, a complex responsibility to the sport at large. They must be absolutely sure that something is valid before they allow it to happen. They can't go off, you know, with a knee-jerk reaction, jumping in and causing more harm than good. And then, of course, at the other end of that, there's always the soothsayers who are just going to have no part of it. And then all of them are bound by money. Uh, they might want to do it and can't afford it. So there's the whole spectrum of things that have, I think, um, been in evidence as we've tried to bring this forward. But slowly but surely, we're, we're making progress. People are getting on board. And um, I'm feeling pretty optimistic now that we're going to get this done. So a couple of things, Dave. Uh, first of all, for the benefit of those people who may not know, uh, you're not just some guy, some computer whiz that, that popped up out of nowhere. Uh, you were actually the one that convinced Michael Dickinson to make the move from England to the United States <laughs> decades ago. You also have been on the cutting edge of technology for a long time. You used heart scans a couple of decades ago to pick out Tap It for mm -hmm. Vern Winchell. We know how that turned out. Um, and we spoke a few years ago. And at the time, you were very frustrated because you had this technology and you knew its potential to save racehorses, and yet you were having trouble getting people to listen. What what was the breakthrough moment when you mm. you very first 
began to get some movement in that direction. Yeah. I think between then and now, I've grown up a bit. <laughs> I was, you know, I was so frustrated at first because I could see this was working. You know, I could sa I could save these horses and these jockeys, and I was a bit headstrong early on. But the reality is, you everything takes time, doesn't it? You've got to get the groundwork right. You've got to, you just got to get in step, and and it's never fast enough, but. Thankfully, it's uh, we've been moving forward. I, I think we had a, a big step forward when Dr. Scott Palmer uh, up at Belmont Park, he's the New York State Equine Medical Director uh, and a very well-respected uh, veterinarian. Uh, he got on board and uh, tested our system for over a year, uh, watched and saw what kind of results we were getting. Um, that was that was that was a breakthrough, just purely and simply for the volume of data that we collected, um, and seeing, unfortunately, seeing the animals that that did in fact break their legs, because you see you can't get a model to predict that unless you've got data on the ones that did it, right? If you if you you can't get the model from from a sound horse, you have to get the model from the animals that die. Uh, we had the provisional model from the uh, Tasmanian data, the 35,000. We'd, we'd investigated that and, and made our provisional model there. But then we had to see would it work in this, in this country? How would it, how would it work out here? So, um, frustrating though it was that year working with Dr. Palmer was, was, very important you know breakthroughs you tend to think of as something explosive but it wasn't like that it was just a relentless uh, commitment and slog towards an accurate end result and uh, that that was a breakthrough um, and then the next thing I think was academia uh, I got a lot more support from academia than I was getting from within the industry. But I think that's just part of the mindset, isn't it? The academics are research-based. They're looking for an answer. They're looking into the future. You know, they're not really thinking about money at all. They're just thinking about data and, and, and solutions. And they could see very quickly that what we were doing was, was valid. So they got on board. Uh, Professor Bailey at Washington State University uh, was on board very quickly. Uh, Dr. Sue Stover, I, I've used her as a sounding board all the way through because she's the world's best expert. She's the most well-informed of any veterinarian on the planet about these things. So every time I got something interesting, I'd run it by Sue for her opinion. So she was very helpful, just kind of steering me in the right direction. And so I got, I, I, I was able to maintain enthusiasm. As a, as a consequence of, of the academic support I was getting. Because there were times it got to, you know, we all got a bit low. We're not getting anywhere. It's costing a lot of money. We had all kinds of people here who've worked for free for two or three years. And there's a vet in Sweden, you know, imagine of all things, a really, really brilliant guy, uh, Mikkel Holmstrom. He's been working for two or three years for nothing to save American racing. I have a professor here, a professor here in, in Lexington who's put in three years working for free to save American racing. So in, in our back rooms, you know, it was a roller coaster of up and down. So all these little bits of support and this relentless move forward is what kept us going. And, and then there were key individuals, um, Jim McInvale, you know, absolutely brilliant. He, he heard about this and within five minutes he jumped, he's on board. You know, he's that kind of a fellow. 
He doesn't wait. He doesn't drag his feet. He sees something that he believes in that's right, and he goes for it. And he supported a lot of this uh, testing for over a year now. We put together a, a Run Happy Welfare um, or Wellness Initiative uh, to try and help his stallion um, and get keep his name out there. But um, he backed us quietly in the background, you know, where nobody else would. He helped us go. So, um, you know, all these things, they, the breakthroughs, they're, they're kind of a, an ongoing, continuing movement. It's like a ratchet just going forward rather than a, a breakthrough per se. We just dogged it out. So, Dave, say I'm a trainer, which I'm not. And I'm sold on stride ride, and I've got a small stable of twelve horses. Mm. Can I afford it? Yeah. So um, l let me just back out a little notch. Right. Um, first of all, we we had limited resources going in, and so the logistics of this was important. So the easiest place for us to start was at a racetrack, where all the horses are in the gate. At the, you know the, the same time we've got all their ids lined up we know how far they're going a lot of you know standardizing stuff so we can put the sensors on them run the race they all finish and, and we've got it all together and we can analyze a lot of horses at one go once you start going out to do individual horses it gets a lot more complicated they're coming out at different times they're coming out from different barns you don't know who's who it, it's a logistically just handling collection, identification, collection, and analysis of these single events, whereas logistically beyond us, technologically it's easy, but handling the logistics of it, we we couldn't we couldn't do. Uh, so we had to just stay um, stay on the on the racetrack and and with the racing where we could get all the information. Um, as far as expense, the test cost thirty five dollars. Um, so. It, 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 it's a drop in the drop in the ocean for compared to the value of some of these horses and the general costs of um, of things. So we look at it. We look at this as a post race welfare analysis uh, that we provide that information to the trainer. The horse has run. Here's all the data. Twenty four hundred times every second. This is how he's changed. This is the level of risk is at, whatever it might be, we just give that to the trainer the day after every race so he can start to develop the program of care for the horse. There's a lot of interest for us to try and do it, you know, for the 12-horse stable. Um, and I hopefully it'll get there one day. Um, but it's rather an expensive um, undertaking to start doing all that. There's different requirements for the technology and things like that that I'm afraid we just don't have the resources to do. So technologically it's possible, but if somebody wants to throw a million dollars at us, we can get it done pretty easily. But so I that's just the kind of the cost there would be. I just have to give you $35. You come and put a sensor on my horse in a race and then mm -hmm. you keep the data forever. Is that it? Is that how it works? Uh, when you say we, well, so far, the owners have not been paying for this. The, the places we've done it, the racetracks have paid for it and are, are giving that to the, um, to the uh, trainers and therefore their owners. Um, I'm hopeful that the racetracks will see that the ones who start to do this are um, operating at a, an advantage for those owners and trainers. Hopefully, it will be something that will, that will attract 
trainers and their owners to certain those facilities that use sensors because they're going to get this basically thrown in for being there. They're going to have a welfare analysis of, of their horse every time it runs. Um, so I think if I was an owner and I'm looking at a stable of horses, I would rather go to those racetracks where that kind of care was just part of the system than I would to places that weren't doing it. Um, so, but then of course it does, that does create a, a bit of an issue because now the racetracks are paying for all the horses. So $35 for one isn't so bad, but multiply that by 10,000 over the year. And now you've got a big number. So there's the budgetary things to consider and all of that, but, um, it, it'll get sorted out eventually. I'm sure we'll find the right way. Uh, David, I'm, you may have changed this from reading Dan Ross's article, but when you started, uh, it was like a traffic light, red, red, yellow, and, and um, yeah. green, with red being the ones that are at the highest risk. And from what I understand, this information is given to the trainers that, okay, your horse uh, was was red, quote unquote red, and you better, you know, be pay close attention to this. Um, in a day and age when Forte is scratched before the Kentucky Derby because it looks like he has a bruised hoof, horses are put on the vets list all the time. Um, would you advocate that if a horse gets the red signal, they should be uh, not able to run for some period of time? No, no, that's good. That's getting ahead of itself. And, okay. we've, and we've modified it a bit since. Like, like Randy was talking about before, and I was a bit wound up and, and, uh, frustrated in the very, very early days. And I wanted a visceral response from people. I wasn't getting the reaction I wanted. And so we chose this traffic light system, you know, red, amber, green, everybody knows what that means. You know, red, stop, 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 you know, come on guys, come on. I was trying to get everybody wound up and, and that worked for a while and it was good. It got everybody's attention. But now in the cool, hard light of day, we realize that that's probably not the best way to do it. It's a bit too alarmist. Now the visceral response can get out of hand and be inappropriate. So we've changed it now into an assessment of risk. And I think that's a lot more practical and a lot more sensible and allows owners and trainers and their vets to make better decisions. So uh, the, the animals that have the worst signal, the worst data, are 300 times more likely to suffer a fatality than are the ones that get the, the normal signal. Um, so we're able to quantify the amount of risk a horse is at when he, and what, once he's come out of a race. So the horse is run, here he is, he's back at the barn, and we get the results. And that horse, the data that horse showed us in that race tells us that he was, he's now 300 times more likely to suffer a fatality. We give that to the, to the, um, to the trainer. This isn't an absolute, he's not definitely going to do it, but he is at a, a seriously increased level of risk. And all we're asking the, the trainer to do is have a special look. Bring your vets in because the vets know where these fractures occur, right? They're not random all over the body. There's, a, there's seven or eight places where these things can break. And 50% of them are in the fetlocks and the sesamoids of the front legs. Half of the fractures, that's where they occur. So if you get a, a, a one of these category five, one through five now is the risk factor and five is the highest risk. So if a trainer gets a five warning after the race, that horse is 300 times more likely to break down and 50% of the ones that do break down are in the front legs. So 
start first of all looking at those fetlocks and looking at those sesamoids and in those places that have now got the pet scanner like we have at churchill and we have out in 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 california as we did with the case recently the two cases recently at um, at churchill they went into the pet scanner and they found the problem so like dan was talking in his little article last week what did he say was good, wasn't it? It was uh, screen, scan, save. I think that's what he said, right? So that's that's what you have to do, right? We screened them, and then the, the vet put the horse through the pet scanner, scanned it, and two horses got saved. So that's the dynamic that we're looking at. And then there'll be nuance and, and subtlety associated with all that. And, and there's going to have to be a lot of calm experience goes into it too because the signal doesn't always come from just a horse that's that's going to get injured um the signal analysis to keep it inexpensive has to be automated well automated uh is is automation is somewhat crude You, you can't automate things for example like if the the jockey makes a sudden pull and tries to go on the inside and bumps another horse. That's going to put a, that's going to put a risk level five on that sensor because something really bizarre happened. But clearly the horse isn't going to break a leg. Um, subsequently, it was a, it was an event that has to be judged by individuals, by, by the jockey or by the trainer. So there's some common sense has to come into this. Um, so, um, once this information goes to the trainer, uh, we hope then that they'll review the race. They'll talk to the jockey. They'll hopefully review the race uh, with their vets. If there is a problem, the vets know this, the places to go to and they'll check those off. So slowly but surely, I think if we do this and if we keep doing it, and we're going to get the universities because uh, Professor Bailey has already volunteered to do this, to teach the uh, vets at the track. We now have to educate them, just like we all learned about ultrasound back in the 80s. You know, we didn't have ultrasound machines in the 70s uh, and they all showed up. And we all had to learn how to work with them. And it'll be the same with this. The next generation of racetrack veterinarian is going to have to be knowledgeable um, about uh, data from sensors. They're going, we're going to have to teach them how to read, you know, these signals. It, it's fairly straightforward. It, they'll, they'll catch on quick. But I could see that then being an integral part of training and caring for, at a veterinary level, horses at the racetrack and catching these things really early because then they're all going to have to start learning how to uh, how to fix, how to cure these very, very early, uh, let's call them athletic ailments that subsequently 10, 12 weeks later lead to unsoundness, which 10 weeks after that leads to a fatality. But if we can send that whole thing back to the very, very, very first instant that some little muscle takes a tweak or some little ligament gets pulled, if we can get the whole industry back there working, then so many of our problems go away. Fixing these fatalities is just a a coincidental event. What will really happen when we do it properly is the horses will stay sound. We'll keep them sound. We'll keep them sound for longer. We'll have racetracks full of seven-year-olds and eight-year-olds because we'll be able to catch them before something goes wrong. So the whole thing is is revolutionary if we can just get it going and by bringing the right kind of data to the trainers and educate the vets as best we can. And, and if we can do it from there, from the ground up, I think the industry is in a really good place. I think we can fix all this stuff. 
Well, Dave, now more than ever, that would be uh, that would be a fantastic thing. You mentioned veterinarians. I don't think we've mentioned this yet. I mean, you are Dr. David Lambert. You are a longtime mm-hmm. veterinarian yourself mm-hmm. uh, in the UK and the United States. How has your veterinary background influenced your passion for this particular project? That's interesting. Uh, well, certainly I've ended up where I am. Um, through my veterinary education, that that got me the opportunity to be in this spot. Uh, my veterinary education uh, gave me some some of the background knowledge which I was going to need. Um, but um, I th- I think the real passion uh, has just come from being around the horses. To be honest, um, I rode out all the time. You know, when I was a vet up in New Jersey, Belmont, Monmouth, you know, all over, I was fortunate enough to um, have an amateur license. So I rode a few races and rode over jumps. I had a trainer's license for a while. wasn't very good at that. Um, You know, but I was down in I was down in the trenches with everybody. And and so the race business gets in you gets it gets in your blood, doesn't it? And, uh, you know, like. To, to be on a, a young three-year-old at six o'clock in the morning galloping around Belmont as the sun comes up, you know, that's kind of where your passion comes from, you know, trying to save that. Um, I've had a couple of falls. I remember one I had where fingers and thumbs were tingling, you know, and you're lying there on the ground and you, you don't know quite what's happened. So it, it ends up giving you a certain uh, feeling and understanding empathy for the, for the jockeys. Because, you know, we talk about horses all the time, and that's absolutely great. But for every horse that goes down, there's a jockey goes with him. And some family could be, you know, devastated. So, um, you know, in the back of my mind, as much as we talk about jockeys as, as horses, my mind is firmly on the jockeys. You know, I, I think there's as much motivation from that. If we can save a jockey from getting paralyzed, that's a big deal. So... You know, the, the being a vet, yeah, it's important. It got me to the spot. It got me where I could understand bone and understand the pathology and, you know, and I could start putting the physiology together of how one horse can beat another and all that kind of stuff that I've done for 40 years. Uh, but it's the entire package, you know, the, the, just everything to do with the horses, the pleasure of being around them, the people that you meet, all of it just, you know, that's the passion and that's what we have to save you know that's what we've got to fix this well yeah. dave i could sit here for another yeah. hour I'm, I'm pretty sure we could just have a three-hour podcast here i just got a couple of questions and then we'll wrap it first yeah. off you're known as the heart doctor you are the heart maestro what is the best heart you've ever measured which horse was it the second off is why do you go and measure horses' hearts at night? Because I'm sure you'll be here till midnight measuring hearts because you're at Keeneland right now. And the third, what has the spleen got to do with it for those people that don't know? So if you could just put a brief synopsis in, that would be great. We're trying to cut this short, are we, Zoe? Hearts <laughs> <laughs> were a long time ago. We started that in the, in the late 70s. We have many more tests now. You'd be fascinated Feel free, call me anytime. If you saw what we do now, there's seven or eight different systems that we're able to assess to determine whether a horse is, is going to be any good or not. Um, but here's one just for 
just for a bit of interest, right? The best hearts are not big. The okay. best heart, they're not. The best hearts are average. Right, so think about this one. I'll just be real quick, right? So a grade one winner is one in about every 300 horses to run, right? So if you say there were, let's say there were five different things that made a race, so let's just kind of go with the flow for the argument to get the point. So if the, if, if item number one existed one in three, so that's pretty common, right? If the second point was one in three, that means one and nine have both. And if the third one was one in three, that's roughly, that's one in 27. Right, have all of them. And then the next one in three, that's one in roughly a hundred, right? There's got four, there's four, I've got all four of them. And if you wanted to get all five of these variables, if that's one in three, you've got one in 300, right? So the mere fact, the actual fact that there's only one grade, hun grade one winner in every 300 to run by definition means that each of the characteristics are average. The grade one horses are not outstanding. They're not outliers generally. They're average everywhere. And that's a bit of a mind blower, right? Because we think these things are super superstars and we look up to them that they're in some way magnificent, but they're not. They're average everywhere. Their bones, their spleens, their hearts, you know, the, the elasticity, all the different things that we look at. Average, 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 gun runner. That's tap it. Uh, there's two. And when they're perfect, when they're average everywhere, they fit any mare that comes through the door, just like Tappet does and just like Gunrunner does. Any mare that comes in gets moved up because you're trying to drive everything back to average, right? Because average is the answer, right? So you're trying, you're bringing in all these different big mares, little mares, fast mares, slow mares, drag them back to average, drag them back to average. And Gunrunner is so good at that he's so prepotent for that and then working with mr winchell he's directed the right mares to this thing and and you get steve a great trainer looking after all of these things and all of a sudden gunrunner does things that no stallion in history has ever done before because all the science was pulled together all the traditional horsemanship was pulled together and that's the answer and the answer's average so that's just to be provocative. I'll, I'll, I'll leave the rest. <laughs> wow. Well, Dr. Lambert, very interesting stuff. And it's nice to know that you and others are working so hard to make racing safer because that is the number one priority for this sport. Dr. David Lambert, the founder of Stride Safe USA and this week's Dream Group Guest of the Week. Thanks so much for joining us. Great, guys. Thank you very much indeed for, for having me on. As this week's Green Group Guest of the Week, the fascinating Dr. David Lambert will receive a free one-hour tax consultation from Lynn Green and Company at the Green Group. To find out more about the Green Group, go to www.greenco.com. Are you paying too much in taxes? The Green Group can help. There's a reason the most successful owners, breeders, and horsemen select the Green Group as their tax advisors. They save you money and share successful strategies. Over the past 40 years, the Green Group founder, Len Green, has owned and bred some of the best racehorses in the history of the sport, like Eclipse Award-winning champions Jaywalk and Wonder Wheel. His DJ stable competes at the highest level and has received the game's most prestigious honors. Len Green's in-depth, hands-on industry knowledge, combined with cutting-edge tax-saving strategies, has produced positive results for his clientele and has made the Green Group the top-rated accounting and tax firm in the thoroughbred business. For a confidential and complimentary consultation, contact us at 732-634-5100. 
or visit our website at www.greenco.com. The Green Group, proven strategies to save you taxes. Game winner first got started and ran a very, very impressive maiden race to Del Mar. Came back in the Del Mar Futurity and again won very impressively at seven furlongs. And then just continued that unbelievable two-year-old year, went on to win the American Pharaoh Stakes at Santa Anita and then the Breeders' Cup Juvenile. And then was obviously crowned two-year-old champion. Got the precocity to do that, plus the stamina and everything that, that his whole family indicates. The Lane Sand Stallion of the Week is game winner. Game winner was the sire of a $385,000 yearling at Keelan from his very first crop of yearlings to come to market. Congratulations to buyers Whitehorse Stables and Matacat Stables. Game winner was the 2018 undefeated champion two-year-old who earned over $2 million. He scored consecutive victories in the Grade 1 Dalmar Futurity, Grade 1 American Pharaoh Stakes, Grade 1 Breeders' Cup Juvenile at Churchill, by Candy Ride and a perennial leading sire at Lane's End. And she, he sure does stamp them, guys. He really does stamp them. Big, strong horses. Well, coming up in the next segment, I got on my format, Zoe on the Women's Conference. Zoe, you are the only Philly and Mayor on the field in here, so <laughs> take it away. Just want to remind everyone that the Women's Summit, we had our first one at Santa Anita last year, is coming up at the end of the month. It's actually right before the big meet at Santa Anita starts in the fall, September 27th through the 29th. Three days, we'll have a welcome on the 27th. Tickets are still available. We will have our keynote speaker, and that is Reagan Cannon. She will be in to speak. And several other good people on the panelists will have Brittany Erton there, Shannon Arvin's coming in from Keeneland, and many, many more. It is a fun, fun um, event that goes on, and you can still get your tickets. I'll be emceeing, and it should be a fun couple of days. Women supporting women should be fun. You could come too, Randy. I mean, there are some men that do come. I'm not invited. Oh, well, you can come as well. You two can come together. We could use some token men in the room. Okay. I mean, you don't want a whole room full of women. I mean, you want to be a fly on the wall for that? Uh, I specialize in being a token man. That's fine. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So uh, Churchill Downs announced uh, some changes to the point structure for the Kentucky Derby. And I wrote that down. We should talk about this. Uh, Unless somebody else wants to fill in. And no big deal. What they're done now is the horses that finish second are getting more points than they used to in the past. So uh, uh, just a little uh, minor tinkering with that. I I thought um, more important news uh, was unfortunate news that just the other day we learned of the passing of Point Given, who died on Monday at age 25. And uh, he won the Preakness in Belmont, uh, 2001 Horse of the Year, six-time grade one winner for Bob Baffert. He was always one of those horses through that era in between affirmed an American Pharaoh, where I thought he probably should have won the Triple Crown. He was far and away the best three-year-old of his era. He, uh, Randy, I don't know if you uh, covered that Kentucky Derby for NBC back then or ESPN, um, but, uh, but I'm sure you remember. He just ran a dull derby. He finished fifth. I don't think he had any particular excuse. Oh, and uh, he came back and, and, and was the real point given from there on in. Yeah, I'll, I'll have a little different opinion here. I think he had a huge excuse. And, <laughs> yeah. and and let me tell you exactly what I think happened, all right? I was We were also covering the Santa Anita Derby at Santa Anita. And in that particular Santa Anita Derby, it was a fairly short field. And Point Given was up on the pace, sitting second close up 
in the early stages of the Santa Anita Derby. Well, the reason was because there was absolutely no speed in that race. When you looked at the pace figures for that race, they were very, very slow. And that gave Bob Baffert and maybe even Gary Stevens a false sense of security that Point Given had all this tactical speed and he could be placed anywhere they wanted him. And when he drew an outside post position for the Kentucky Derby in 2001, uh, the decision was made that if he got a decent start from the gate, they could use him a little bit early because of what they saw in the Santa Anita Derby. They could put him in close up position and all would be well. Well, what happened in the 2001 Kentucky Derby was one of the most supersonic paces in Kentucky Derby history, and Point Given was less than two lengths off of the lead after a quarter of a mile. That's not his style at all. He was completely taken out of his best game. And of course, what we saw after the Kentucky Derby, uh, he was allowed to revert to his normal off-the-pace running style in the Preakness in the Belmont and then later on the Travers and just blew him away. Now, having said that, when you go back and you watch the 2001 Kentucky Derby, Monarcos absolutely freaked in that race. He ran an unbelievable race that day. I think he won by four lengths or something like that. And I'm not sure that Point Given would have beaten Monarcos on that particular day, even if he was ridden the way Point Given want, wanted to be ridden. Uh, but I think he certainly had an excuse uh, for being as uh, off form as he was in that particular derby. That was the coulda, shoulda, woulda race for point given. You asked Bob Baffert about point given. He thinks he should have won the Triple Crown. Simple yeah, one other little point given story that I have. You might have another one, too. So you remember he used to rear up all the time? Oh, yeah. Uh, he used to love doing that, coming back from the track, going to the track, at the barn, Whenever he would go up on his hind legs, sort of like Fusaichi Pegasus used to do, and do the That's whole right. silver thing. He got loose a couple of times and ran off. Uh, before the Belmont Stakes, he climbed out underneath a stall webbing at Belmont Park and got loose around. Yeah, he, he was known for stuff like that, right? So after he wins the Belmont Stakes, uh, we're covering for ESPN the Stephen Foster. At, at, at Churchill Downs. And so uh, Baffert was there with another of his horses and Point Given was stabled in the barn at Churchill Downs at that point with Baffert. He'd been taken from Belmont to Churchill. And so about feed time, about three o'clock in the afternoon, we went back to talk to Bob Baffert. I think it was me and Janine Edwards, maybe. And it was about 98 degrees outside. And I asked Bob, said, how's Point Given? So he turns around, goes into the barn, comes back out, brings Point Given on a lead shank. So it's Mike Martin, the old photographer of the racing forms there as well. And so we're standing there, you know, two, three feet away from Point Given, which is really cool, obviously, beautiful horse. And the phone rings and someone from in, in the office sticks their head out of the barn and says, Bob, phone call. And Bob says, all right, here, Andy, and tosses me the shank to Point Given. <laughs> I'm, I said, I'm standing there holding the shank to a horse that's notorious for rearing up on his hind legs and getting loose and running off. I'm not a horseman. <laughs> Bob's walking back to the barn and I'm like, Bob, Bob, don't, you don't want to do this, Bob. He said, ah, it's 98 degrees outside. This horse isn't doing anything. <laughs> and sure enough, he just stood there like a plow horse. And Mike Martin got a great picture of me holding point given, which I still have out in front of the barn at Churchill Downs. Anyway. That's pretty awesome. He actually only really reared up with a rider on his back. And that was oh, usually okay. good day. There I is a... 
There is a fantastic picture, and I'm sure Katie will be able to find it somewhere, if not I find it, of him rearing up so high, Pepe has his arms around his neck and his feet hanging off him. He was a much better rearer than Fusaichi Pegasus ever was because he knew exactly just how high to go and scare the bejesus mm-hmm. out of his rider without falling over. That was He was very talented, not only as a racehorse, but he would have been the world's best rearer that anybody ever saw in their lifetime. And he would scare the bejesus out of every single person that sat on his back. And he took the bejesus out of me when Baffert handed me the lead tank. I guarantee you that. See the things you learn on the TDN writer's room. Randy Moss holding point given he's worth a zillion dollars and he's known for rearing up. And Randy, oh my goodness, but uh, you came out of it unscathed. So this weekend's racing, uh, Churchill Downs is back. They have a big card. Uh, One of the big races there will be the Louisville Thoroughbreds. It's at Rubango. We'll try to tie the record for most wins ever at Churchill Downs as 10 right now going for the 11th. Uh, the Belmont at Aqueduct meet starts with the um, Jockey Club Oaks. But, Randy, uh, all eyes will also be on Woodmine. Three winning you're in races for the Breeders' Cup. I know your NBC team is going to cover that. What can you tell us about what to expect at Woodmine this weekend? Yeah, we'll be showing two of the three. We'll be showing the Woodbine Mile, probably the Natalma uh, for two-year-old fillies at a mile, the summer stakes for two-year-old uh, two-year-olds in general. Uh, will also be in a mile, uh, all three races on Saturday. Um, in the Woodbine Mile, it looks like a pretty short field. Charlie Appleby, who won the race last year with Modern Games, is expected to bring a horse by the name of Master of the Seas, who may be scaring away some of the competition. Uh, Cheryl Spite, uh, who ran in the Woodbine Mile last year and finished fourth, went on to be second to Modern Games in the Breeders' Cup Mile, is also expected to run in the Woodbine Mile. And uh, Mark Cassie has a horse named Ice Chocolate, who comes off a really good third behind a Casa Creed in his most recent race at Saratoga. In the Natalma, uh, Mark Cassie is expected to have a huge hand, as you would expect, but once again... Charlie Appleby bringing over a horse named Dazzling Star. And in the summer stakes, which Appleby has won each of the last two years, Mysterious Night and Al Bar for Godolphin, he is bringing over a horse called Musical Act. Now, Musical Act might have his hands full, though, in the summer, even though he's trained by Charlie Appleby, with a horse named My Boy Prince from the Mark Cassie Barn, who was a 14-length winner last time out in the Simcoe Stakes at Woodbine, uh, he's running on synthetic in all three of his lifetime starts. But of course, the uh, the summer stakes will be run on grass. So, so Appleby Cassie, that's I've just got to bet that blindly, right? I heard and it. Kevin Attard, Kevin Attard also oh, yeah. has a lot of horses nominated for both races. And what's kind of interesting here, and what's going on at Woodbine this summer with the two year olds, the Phillies are much better than the Colts. As a matter of fact, uh, Mark Cassie ran 1-2 in the Colts division of the prep, the wide-open two-year-old division of the prep, uh, which was called the Soaring Free uh, with with uh, uh, with Phillies, obviously. And now he's thinking about running at least one and maybe two Phillies in the summer stakes, in addition to about four Phillies that he has being pointed for the Natal. The TDN Writers Room is brought to you by XBTV. This week's XBTV Work of the Week is Anarchist, the winner of the Grade 2 Pat O'Brien Handicap 
on August the 26th. My birthday, guys, just in case you forgot. This horse earned a position in the starting gate of the big ass fans Breeders' Cup Dirt Mile with that win. And look, he looked outstanding in his most recent work on Sunday at Del Mar going four furlongs in 48 flat. XPTV, in case you didn't know, guys, is free. We shoot hundreds of workouts per week around the country and post them at no charge on xbtv.com. You just got to sign up and get an account. It is free and the number one tool you need. We'll be right back after this message. All the thrills. Fraction of the bills. Experience the power of the partnership. Change your life, make new friends, and compete at the highest level of thoroughbred racing. West Point Thoroughbreds, the gold standard in racing partnerships. Visit westpointtb.com. The TD and Riders Room also brought to you by West Point Thoroughbreds. Joining a West Point partnership can vault you into the world of instant camaraderie. Last week, West Point and partners had five winners, the most important of which, of course, was Integration, who won the grade three $300,000 Virginia Derby. Uh, he was a $700,000 Saratoga yearling, and he won the, the uh, Virginia Derby at Colonial going away in track record time. The other winners for West Point this weekend, let's go through them here. Ohana won an allowance at Colonial. They also had three maiden special weight winners, Independence Avenue at Colonial, Soho, and also the impressive Slider, both of those uh, MSW winners at Del Mar. West Point, to no one's surprise, currently shopping. The Caneland September sale. Check out westpointtb.com for available horses. Well, that's a wrap on this week's show. I want to thank my partners, Randy Moss and Zoe Cabman. I want to thank our Green Group Guest of the Week, David Lambert, our co-producers, Katie Petruniak and Anthony LaRocca, and our editors, Alina LaRocca and Nathan Wilkinson. Thanks so much for tuning us in. We'll talk to you next week.